Well, last week we looked at the exposition of the Great Commission. And I think you, um, hopefully that wasn't too confusing. Um, we saw that the central focus of the passage in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, the central focus was what? The, the Great Commission. What was the central focus of it? It was, was it was it go or was it make disciples? Make disciples, make disciples right. So the, the central focus was making disciples. Um, and so that is the main, the main uh, you know, that, that is what we're told to do there. The other, the other, so we looked at the language a little bit and we broke all that down. This is the essential task of the Great Commission. If we want to base our mission strategy on the Great Commission, and that's, that's a good place to do that from, we, we must come to grips with what it means to make disciples. So this week we want to look at the essence of the Great Commission, Christ's Commission there in Matthew 28. And I said it last week, we can't make disciples without first announcing the good news. That was what the whole evangelism uh, section was about, right? You can't become a disciple unless you first understand the gospel and um, place your faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. That is, the, that is the first thing that has to happen. But that's where the Great Commission starts, not stops. And so this morning, we're going we're, we're to talk about that section of it, okay? So uh, a little bit of a disclaimer, and that is that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to key in on that's not where the great, you know, that, 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 that's where the Great Commission starts in the gospel, but it doesn't stop there. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to key in on the second part of that, all right, to show you what make disciples really is about and the, the idea behind that. Um, so I'll say some things, and uh, I under, just so you know, I do understand that the Great Commission starts with the gospel. But I think it goes beyond, it goes further than that. And, that's, uh, and so that's what I want to, we'll, we'll talk about today. So let's uh, read together if you want to turn to Matthew 28. Once again, just familiarize ourselves with what we're looking at here. Matthew 28, uh, 19 and 20. It says, uh, well, let's start up before that in, in verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So in order to resharpen our focus on on the essence of the Great Commission, today we want to try to answer the question, what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? So number one, the meaning of discipleship. What is a disciple? Matthew 11, uh, 29 and 30 says... 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest in your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word translated make disciples in the Great Commission means to bring them into relation to of pupil to teacher. Taking his yoke of authoritative instruction, that's Matthew eleven twenty nine, accepting what he has, what he says as true because he says it, and submitting to his requirements as right because he made those requirements. So I'll give you a simpler definition, and that would be to, to make someone into a learner of Jesus Christ. To make someone into a learner of Jesus Christ. The, the great commission given to us by Jesus involves the transformation of rebels into followers. And so that would have to mean that the Great Commission involves more than what is normally called evangelism. It starts there. We have to evangelize and we have to share the gospel. But it, but it goes beyond that. The Great Commission produces disciples, not decisions. Um, it's true that becoming Christ's disciples occurs at a decisive point in time. We don't always know exactly what that point is, but there is a point in time where you come to Christ and Christ becomes your Lord and Savior. And, uh, so there is, there, is, there is a time where there's a decisive point in time and through a decision you've received Christ. That is evangelism. That's what we talked about. That is the gospel. But sad evidence of a defective and unbiblical mission strategy is the tendency to be satisfied with evangelistic decisions that yield no lasting fruit or transformation in the lives of those who've supposedly received Christ. I'll say that again. The, the sad evidence of a defective and unbiblical mission strategy is to the tendency to be satisfied with evangelistic decisions that yield no lasting fruit or transformation in the lives of those who've supposedly received Christ. As we look at the Great Commission, we need to see that the work of missions is intended to produce more than just a decision. To make disciples is a broader concept than simply to make a convert, simply evangelizing. The word it's, itself is a, it's an educational term. In a sense, we're to enroll people in the school of Christ using the textbook of God's word. We're to tutor them and then meticulously mentor them month by month, year by year, until they mature in Christ. And you can see that by, by what, we, what happens even here at this church. You come uh, to different, acti- different Bible studies. You come every Sunday. 
you learn God, hopefully you learn, you don't just sit here, but you're learning God's word and you're learning what to do. And so it's, you, there was a point in time where you became a, uh, a disciple and then you, you are continuing, you're, you're being, uh, you're a learner of Christ. And so it continues to go. We don't just evangelize so a lost soul makes a decision for Christ. We make disciples so a lost soul makes a dramatic and permanent change of personal allegiance to Christ. So the work of missions is intended to produce disciples who follow Christ. Most missionaries are, are church planters or you, have, you find missionaries over there that are overseas that are, that are um, maybe um, involved in a, in a training facility that is training the locals there to become pastors so that they can pastor a church. The purpose of that is so that we're not, we're not just going over there uh, sitting in a subway and, and passing out tracts to everybody and then, and then going home. Missionaries are in the business of making disciples. And so that's, that's kind of the idea here. And I think that's what Jesus taught in John 8, 31 to 32. In those verses, he says, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you set us free. That's 8. Uh, John 8, 31 and 32. According to Jesus, a true disciple is one who will continue in his word. And being a disciple like that means that you will know the truth and the truth will let you, set you free. You move on a couple more verses in verses 35 and 36 of John 8. The freedom he's describing is the freedom from being a slave to sin and the freedom of being God's children. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Verses 35 and 36. Then you go to verse 37 and it says, the same Jews that had believed in him were now trying to kill him. And so 50, verse 51 in that section makes the eternal significance of those words really clear. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So Christ's teaching here is the key to the reality that there was a group of people who, who had believed in him. Verse 31. Yet were in Christ's own words seeking to kill him. Verse 37, how could they be described as believing and still be slaves to sin and, and seeking to kill Jesus? And I think it's because their faith wasn't genuine. They weren't true disciples of Jesus Christ. D.A. Carson summarizes it by saying, Jesus now lays down exactly what it is that separates spurious faiths from true faith, fickle disciples from genuine disciples. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. The verb rendered hold is to abide or to remain. 
In short, perseverance is the mark of true faith, of real disciples. A genuine believer remains in Jesus' word, his teaching. Such a person obeys it, seeks to understand it better, and finds it more precious, more controlling, precisely when other forces flatly oppose it. It is the one who continues in the teaching who has both the Father and the Son. I think he summarizes it well. In spite of efforts by some today to, uh, to deny the possibility of a counterfeit faith, Jesus knew that not all who claimed to follow him really were truly followers. His words here are no different than the warning in Matthew 7. We read that before, Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. And that says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons. And in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So don't misunderstand the point here. Jesus isn't teaching that salvation is based on some performance or works of man. What's at stake is the debate over, over decisions versus disciple. It's, it's the power of the gospel. Does it produce a new creation in Christ who follows him? We're not talking about the basis or condition of salvation. We're talking about the evidence of salvation. When God truly saves someone, he turns that person into a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul calls believers to live out their faith in Christ as well. And uh, if you want to turn to Ephesians 4, he reaffirms this viewpoint on the meaning of discipleship in Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 24. And we'll, we'll see here he develops this argument. Somebody want to read Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. So this I say, affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which, is, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Yeah. So some, some people want to argue that the fact that uh, the word disciple isn't used in the New Testament after Acts, that it's not valid. Making disciples isn't valid anymore. But I think in verses 20 through 21 here, you see the use of the words learn and heard and been taught. And clearly that's the concept of discipleship. In fact, the word translated learn is often used in the Gospels to express the nature of discipleship. And any standard Greek lexicon gives the meaning 
as being someone's disciple. So Paul, Paul is arguing the difference between the manner of life of an unbeliever and a believer. No matter what they say they've done, you, there's a manner of life that's different. The difference is that the believer is grounded in who they are in Christ as, as Christ's disciples. To live like pagans is contrary to learning Christ, hearing Christ, and having been taught Christ in verses 20 and 21 of Ephesians 4. And when they did learn Christ, they were taught the drastic difference between the former manner of life and the new self in verses 22 and 24 to 24. The Ephesians were taught that becoming believers involved a radical break with the past. It was the putting off or the laying aside of the old person. Putting off the old person and putting on the new self shows that there's a, there's a decisive change here. The combination of those two words is crucial. The biblical truth of conversion is that it is both decisive and transforming. And too many times the evangelism and missions emphasis reduces conversion to just a transaction. It is. It is a transaction. It truly is. Um, but receiving Christ, if, if it's only a transaction, receiving Christ is like signing up for a life insurance policy. Rather than presenting the full New Testament picture of spiritual transformation accomplished by God's power. It's, it's that 2 Corinthians 5.17. It becomes a watered down view of salvation. It has disastrous ramifications for the full fulfillment of the Great Commission. And it's out of harmony with what the Bible tells us about what it means to receive Christ. It's not a flippant thing. So following these biblical examples of Jesus and Paul, we are to make relationships with, e with others to the extent that they, by God's grace, accept the message of the gospel, accept the message of Christ, and seek to grow in their knowledge of and devotion to Him. Being a disciple of Christ is more than just a decision or a transaction. Being a disciple of Christ is a life-changing spiritual transformation. That was number one. Number two. Bob? Yes. I've got a question. There was an example of this, what you're talking about in Acts, with Simon the Sorcerer. He came, uh, he was, uh, had an encounter with Phil. Mm -hmm. He wanted the gospel. He was baptized. Then Peter came and they started to question his salvation. And, he's, and when he saw that, they were laying hands on people and they received the Holy Spirit. Then he said, I will give you money to be able to do that. Yeah. And then Peter tells him, you can take your money and perish with that. Yeah. And he says, what you need to do is repent. There you so go. Obviously, he did not repent, even though he was baptized. Right, it right. amazing. So baptism doesn't exactly bring you to salvation. Exactly. And, and that's what I'm trying to get at. I'm overemphasizing a point. Yeah. I obviously 
understand, and I'm not trying to say that if someone is, comes to Christ through the gospel, that they're not a disciple of, of Christ. That's where it starts. But too many times that those kinds of things happen and we are, and, and we live like our lives have not, not changed a bit. We live like the world and live instead of Christ's followers. So that's what I'm trying to get at here. This is, this is what making disciples is all about. Number two, we preach Christ, not what he offers. The transaction approach to evangelism misses the point of Jesus' command to make disciples. I've said it over and over. The plain fact of Scripture is that the gospel is not primarily about a plan of salvation. It's about a Savior. It's about Christ. Of course, there's technically a transaction that happens when someone is truly saved. But the content of the gospel is more than just an offer sheet or a, or a benefits package. The gospel communicates who Jesus is, what he did on the cross, his victory over death, and what he demands of them, which includes repentance and faith. Even the gospel summary we went through in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4 focuses on Christ and his work. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. We preach Christ, not what he offers. And this is the focus of the gospel preaching as it's seen in the New Testament. I think I included a bunch of uh, uh, verses there. So let's look up those verses if, uh, if you all want to look those up. And then um, whoever gets to Acts 5.42 first, go ahead and read that. Again, we're, we're going to see here that that's the focus of gospel preaching, preaching as it's seen in the New Testament. And every day at the temple and from house to house, they kept right on preaching and teaching and preaching Jesus, Jesus as the Christ. Yeah, there it is. That's what they're doing. They're, it's Christ that they're preaching. It's Christ that they're teaching. Acts 18.5. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Right, same thing. Uh, Romans 16.25 Now to him that is is a power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began. Right, again their emphasis is they're preaching Christ not, not something that he offers. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.23 so we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. 1 Corinthians 2.2 2. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Right. And then uh, 2 Corinthians 4.5 
For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Yeah, so it's the emphasis. The emphasis is Jesus Christ. That is the emphasis of the preaching. And in John 15, 26, Jesus left us a great promise. He promised that he would send another helper, the Holy Spirit, and that he will testify about who? Christ. Christ. The Spirit magnifies Christ because Christ alone is the hope of salvation. Until, until a person sees the glory of Jesus Christ by faith in this life, he'll never see the glory of Christ in heaven. So we, we receive Christ. We don't receive an offer sheet. We receive Christ. Number three, we receive Christ, not just facts about Christ. We receive Christ. What does it mean to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, for many, it means nothing more than, than just something intellectual. It's only an acceptance of certain biblical and historical facts. But that doesn't do justice to the, to, to the biblical concept of accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Scriptures are clear that receiving Christ involves the mind and emotion and will. In other words, it's a response uh, of, of the complete person. We must know what the gospel is in order to be saved. That's the mind. We, we must agree with it. That's emotion. And we must give ourselves to Jesus Christ in response to it. That's, that's that will. It's true that the gospel involves biblical content and faith is based on it. That's true. That's why Paul would dogmatically say in Romans 10, 14, how will they call on him in whom we have not believed? They have not believed. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? A morally responsive person cannot be saved apart from knowing about the person and work of Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But saving faith goes beyond the level of just, just information or, or mental comprehension uh, of certain facts. Saving faith sees the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Saving faith involves a heart response to the gospel. The heart is where the Holy Spirit turns our affections to Christ in love. Look at what Peter tells us about this aspect of our saving faith in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. Yeah, so faith, saving faith involves a heart response to the gospel. This is actually the verses, this is kind of the source of the verses that uh, Jonathan Edwards used in his, his uh, religious affections. He, he, what he did is he argued that true religion in, in great part consists of holy affections. We have to have holy affection. It involves a heart response. 
So, um, so it, it involves, saving faith involves a heart response to the gospel. Saving also, though, involves the will. The believer embraces Christ as the only hope of eternal life and gives himself to him. So when we come to Christ, we, we give ourselves to him. This is Paul's point in 2 Timothy 1.12, where he says, For this reason I also suffer these things, that I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. He, Paul entrusted himself to Christ. He knew that Christ was completely trustworthy. So this volitional aspect of saving faith is why the Bible speaks of the obedience of faith. Romans 1.5 and 16.26. And believing in Christ as obeying the Son in John 3.36. Or heeding the good news in Romans 10.16. So we don't just receive facts about Christ. We receive Christ. Number four, we turn to Christ. We don't just add him to our lives. He just, it's just not, um, he's not just uh, this compartment over here that we just add another, another part. We turn to Christ. We don't just add him to our life. We talked about this before, but I think it's, it's sad that many today try to minimize or eliminate repentance from the gospel. By removing or redefining repentance, we contradict what the Bible teaches about conversion. Conversion is the combination of turning from sin, repentance, to Christ and faith. This is, this is seen in texts like Acts 20, 21 where Paul was solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Although some have wrongly used dispensationalism as a basis to argue that repentance was restricted only to the Jews, this verse shows that Paul preached to the Gentiles as well. They're just not true. In fact, in a strictly Gentile context, Acts 17, 30, that's that Mars Hill section, Paul says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. And note that it says all people everywhere should repent. I don't understand how how you can really waffle on the fact that repentance is necessary for salvation. Some say you must repent to be saved, but then they try to redefine repentance so that it really is no different from faith. They argue the Greek word for repentance means nothing more than to change your mind. So repentance means you change your mind about Jesus Christ. You didn't believe in him, and now you do believe in him. And I do think that just that alone is a flawed argument. 
First is flawed, it's a flawed method of defining terms. Etymologies, or the, the, the study of the origin of words, can be helpful in some cases, but they're not necessarily the final word on the definition of the term. The context is. The context, context, context. How the word is used. It's like, it's like um, grape nuts cereal. There's grape nuts are not grapes or nuts, right? I'm not sure what they are, actually. But, uh, but it's the same kind of thought press. Even if you argue that the word repentance comes from the two words mind and change, it doesn't mean that all it, that all it means is change your mind in a purely intellectual sense. And second, and, more, and more, even more important, even if repentance only meant change your mind, this view selectively chooses what you change your mind about. This view argues that it means only to change your mind about Christ. Why doesn't it include changing your mind about sin? Or why doesn't it include changing your mind about God? How about false worship? Acts 17.30. Or why not dead works? Hebrews 6.1. It's, it's unacceptable to redefine the biblical concept of repentance in any way that excludes sin. Jesus commissioned his disciples to preach, Luke 24, 47, that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. If we eliminate repentance from the gospel then I don't believe we're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we eliminate sin from our definition of repentance, then I don't believe we're preaching the kind of repentance that Jesus commissioned us to preach. The biblical gospel makes disciples of those who've turned to Christ. And it doesn't just add them to their collection of gods or squeeze them into an unaltered life. That's why Paul could write on the confidence of salvation to the, to the Thessalonians. Go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians uh, 1, 9, and 10. He's, he's writing this to the Thessalonians. He's, he's, he's confident of their salvation. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, and 10. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath of Their faith was demonstrated by conversion. They turned from idols to serve a living and true God. God will not accept a place on the shelf alongside idols. And that shouldn't surprise us because Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Look at John 2.15-17. It's no different than what John says here in John 2, 15 to 17. When you get somebody, get Sarah, go ahead and read it. John 2, 15 to 17. 
and he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. <clears throat> and to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us that your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build the temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that. He said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Those are really good verses. It's not what I was looking for. Oh, what did I do? No, you were right. You were right. I told you that. But I told you wrong. This should be 1 John. I just, I just looked here. Where, so I'm thinking, what did I write down here? Yeah, 1 John 15 to 17. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. I'll read it. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and all is lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Listen, every believer sitting here today is going to struggle with worldliness in some form or fashion. We all do. That's not the issue. But there's a, there, there's a definite break that occurs in the life of those who've truly been saved. The believer doesn't have two masters. Only one. Rather than simply changing our eternal destination from, from hell to heaven, the Bible teaches that salvation is also a work of spiritual transformation. We've said this, we've gone over this verse over and over through the evangelism. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Salvation involves the creation of a new nature and that is evidenced in a changed life. Ephesians 4, 24 and put off the new self, which is the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness and of the truth. The saving power of God has done a work of recreating according to his own likeness, and believers are being transformed into it. That's, that's Colossians 3.10. Rod will get there someday. Um, the power of God's saving grace is so transforming that Paul warns those who are living in habitual sin of terrible eternal consequences. Uh, I think I added these verses in there, in the parentheses. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Somebody have that? These are often neglected biblical warnings, but we should take them as biblical warnings. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor infeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, 
nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Even if you've prayed a prayer, if this is your practice, life's practice, that's, and, it, you know, I, I, I really, you know, he gives all these things and you can say, ah, yeah, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me. And then he adds, adds in there, and things like these. But the, the whole idea there is patterns of unrighteousness. Ephesians 5.5. 5. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Hebrews 12.14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And the last one, 1 John 3, 7 to 9. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one is born of God, practices sin, because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin, because he is born of God. Pretty clear, pretty clear. Contrary to what some teach about salvation, the Bible is clear. They were saved not just from the penalty of sin, but also from its dominating power over our lives. Romans, you can write down some Romans 6.14 there too. None of these texts are teaching that we keep ourselves saved by some sort of obedience. That we keep ourselves that way. But they all teach that the evidence of our salvation is that God has changed us. The new birth produces a new life. That's the key. Where there's no new life, the biblical conclusion is that there's been no new birth. So we turn to Christ. We don't just add Him to our lives. Jesus is not just a part of our lives. He's the point of our life. Number five, we accept Christ. We don't just make deals for eternal life. Another evidence of the transaction approach to salvation is the tendency to treat faith in Christ as a one-time appropriation of His promise rather than a persevering attachment to Him. While there can be no doubt that a person expresses saving faith at a decisive point in time, it's wrong to conclude from this that saving faith does not necessary last or, or continue. As surprising as it may seem, some even argue that a person could stop believing in Jesus Christ altogether and still be saved. And so, um, it's, it's just not a, 
It's an unbiblical view of faith. Again, let's go to the scriptures to prove that. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you, are, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Colossians 1, 21-23. Once you are alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death, living holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, establishing firm, you do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become this. Right. And then Hebrews 10, 39. Yeah, if we're if we're truly believers, we're not going to shrink back into living our whole lives life for the devil. Um, we are we are going to pursue our sanctification. Please don't mistake what I'm saying here. I'm not arguing the person could lose his salvation. The Bible teaches that all who are saved, First Peter one five are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. But because it's God's power that protects them, we can say confidently with the Apostle Paul, Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in them will perfect it or complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. When God saves... His gracious power sustains our faith until we reach heaven. That's it. Period. But from a human perspective, only, our only assurance that a person has truly trusted Christ is if they continue to hold to the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 2, and to the confession of faith in Christ, Hebrews 3, 6, and 14. Now, there are significant implications of this when we're talking about missions, especially if we look at it from the same perspective Paul did during his missionary work. Most approaches to, to missions concentrates only on the initial coming to Christ. We just go, getting people saved. The preoccupation with professions of faith seems to be out of, out of step with what Paul actually did. In, on his missionary journeys. It misses the point of the, the Great Commission, which is to make disciples. Paul was interested in more than just, just their professions of faith. In Corinth and Colossae, he exhorted believers to hold fast to the gospel. And, and in 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 5, that might be our, our best example. Go ahead and turn there. His concern for the spiritual warfare of the believers is demonstrated in, in, in these verses, how he kind of viewed his missionary work. 1 Thessalonians 3, 1-5. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we 
thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this, for indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. So we know, we know that they responded well to the gospel. But these verses in, make it clear that Paul wasn't prepared to come to the same conclusion that that's all. You know, that, that is it, are they good then? They came to the gospel. They said they came to the gospel. Are they good then? And uh, so he wasn't prepared to say that, and he's writing back to them. It's true that he rejoiced at the initial reception of the gospel, but the continued faith of the Thessalonians was essential for him to be sure that his ministry wasn't, verse 5, in vain. Paul knew that he had and had forewarned them that following Christ is going to mean afflictions. You got remember that they're, they're being persecuted by the, the, the Romans. Um, Caesar was a god. And so for, for them to turn to Christ, they were going to be afflicted. Because of their afflictions, they rooted their conversions to Christ. Paul was concerned that, that they might be kind of disturbed. Did they really do that? And so he writes to them so that he's going to find out if their, their profession was shaken in any way from its foundation. So the concern in this whole section is the repeated emphasis on faith in 3, 2, 5, even 6, 7, and 10. Didn't read those. More specifically, the solidity and continuation of the profession of faith. Again, Paul's concern was, verse 3, 3, 3, no one would be disturbed. 3, 5, that his labor would be in vain. And then going further, 3, 8, that they stand firm in the Lord. And their continuation as Christians, true Christians, is described by the term faith. Perseverance isn't a matter of human works, but of faith in God's promises. The real issue for Paul was whether they had come to Christ at all. That's what he was getting at. If not, then his work was in vain or empty. Hebert says in his commentary on the Thessalonian epistles, Paul was fully aware that the final outcome of his labors was dependent upon the steadfastness of his converse. And that's what we're talking about here. Same, same idea. So, um, let me give you a really quick summary. Some of the implications. The heart of the Great Commission is the command to make disciples. And loving, number two, loving obedience to Jesus Christ means that we do what he has commanded. Number three, what he's commanded extends beyond preaching the gospel to lost people. It involves seeing rebels against God turned into followers of Jesus Christ. Number four, in contrast to the sometimes shallow approaches to evangelism and discipleship popular in our day, the New Testament presents 
us with a powerful gospel that focuses on Christ himself. Not just what he offers to sinners. And rather than simply providing internal address change, which is a great thing, we rejoice in that, the saving grace of God makes believers into new creatures, created to reflect, God, reflect God's image in righteousness and holiness. And so it's towards this purpose that we proclaim Christ. And unfortunately, reducing saving faith to just a formal business transaction has watered down the gospel, and in many cases, the gospel has been further watered down by, by, by just elimination or redefining repentance. Number five, we've been too often preoccupied with short-term results, decisions, rather than a life transformation, disciples. The net result of these shifts away from biblical, the biblical strategy of missions of making disciples is that much of professing Christianity here in the United States and across the world on the mission field is a mile wide and an inch deep. I'm, afra- I'm afraid that many people have prayed a prayer, but far few have, have actually received the Savior. That's, that's what I'm concerned about. If we're really serious, number four, six, I'm sorry, I think we're at six, If we're really serious about fulfilling the Great Commission, then we need to stand without apology for a transforming gospel that calls people to repentance and faith. It's interesting. uh, When I visit, I I had the opportunity to visit some missionaries in, uh, in Russia, and even we had them into our church in Kansas City when they would come to visit us. And they never, ever... Um referred to coming to Christ as, or as accepting Christ. They never referred it to it as anything. When they, when they asked me for, to give my testimony, they would say, um, can, I, can, I, can you tell me how, how you've repented? That was the way they, they, they spoke. That's just what they thought. That's, that's how the way they processed it. So we can't dodge the fact that the that the gospel calls people to turn from sin to a savior, from dead works to Christ's righteousness, and from vain idols to the one true and living God as revealed in Jesus Christ. Christ commanded us to make disciples who would follow him in baptism and obey all that he's commanded. So our missionary efforts as we consider missions, even at this church, must settle for nothing less. We haven't, but we just need to make sure. All of this leads to a very important question then, and that is, how are disciples made? Come back next week, and we'll try to answer that question. All right, let me pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Go with us now, give us ears to hear, and may we have sweet fellowship with one another as we sing and fellowship together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.